Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Longtime Hong Konger Pete Sparrier is a publisher and avid hiker. He runs Blacksmith Books and is the author of a series of successful Hong Kong hiking books. As a boy, his family's house lay on a Roman road and he always wanted to travel. In his late teens, he set off across the English Channel with £500 in his pocket. In the next two programmes, Pete Sparrier talks to me about that journey that would eventually bring him to Hong Kong, but on the way, take him through Europe, North Africa, onto a Greek cave, and then through the new countries created by a disintegrating Soviet Union, and his final destination, China. I asked him, when you were a boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to travel. I used to sit in the school library, often reading old atlases and old encyclopedias instead of being out playing football. I then got a job in the local library so I could explore even more of a history and travel and geography. So I had no plan what I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to leave school and then go and see the world. And what was the aspect of travel that appealed to you? I mean, you grew up in nature, which we'll be looking at, but was it the idea of the geological world or was it the people you'd meet along the way? It was sort of, um, I wanted to see the places where history had happened, actually. I was all into the uh, sort of myths of ancient Greece and the stories of Alexander the Great and the the, the pharaohs, the Celts, and I, I knew it was a very large world and I wanted to see more of it. And what, track those routes or go to see where Hannibal went? Or Why not? And I ended up following some of those routes and uh, it brought me to Hong Kong in the end, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so where did you grow up, Pete? I was born in London, but moved to a small town on the edge of London when I was about seven. My dad got a better job so we could have a house with a garden. And that was a very good move because we had the best of both worlds there. If you uh, came out of our house and turned right, you'd go down to the bus stop and get a bus into London. Uh, if you turned left, you'd walk to the end of the road, there was a farm, the track stopped, and then beyond that it was just farmland, forests, woods, rivers, lakes, uh, fields of wheat. Uh, so I spent every weekend and every summer holiday just exploring this wonderful parkland which extended for miles so you just get lost in there yeah get lost build camps in the trees you know build tunnels in the wheat fields i used to make maps actually of the streams that flowed through the woods and then find out in which part of the town they'd they'd flow out into it was a wonderland now your father was a porter at smithfield meat market originally yes and also in a band uh, used to work all night at the meat market and then i think that finished about seven o'clock in the morning that was a very late night trade smithfield is an interesting place there were pubs around there that had special licenses to open at seven o'clock in the morning oh, so when, when all when the, the, uh, when all the wholesale market people finished yes. uh, the pubs would open at 7am they'd have a knees up you know get around the piano and so we used to play music as well sing in a band and so when when I was one, actually, he got a, a sort of season's job as a band on a cruise ship, which went around the Mediterranean. And so he took me and my mum along. I was one year old, and we went to Spain, France, Morocco. And so maybe that put travel in my blood a little bit. <laughs> Ended up in Tangier. <laughs> in Tangier, yeah. In terms of Smithfield Market, am I right saying it's just a meat market or it's general fruit and veg and all sorts? It was the meat market he worked in, mm. and now it's not. The market moved out to the south of the river, I think, a few years later. Yeah. So uh, your father, what sort of, and what was his name? Derek. And what sort of music did he play? He played, well, this was the 60s, so it was a uh, rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and he played guitar, piano? Or? Played guitar and sang uh, lead singer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, have you got yeah. any recordings of him? Uh, just one. <laughs> 
Travelling already uh, on a cruise in a pushchair. Yeah, yeah, I don't um, remember much. <laughs> <laughs> but when you didn't turn towards the bus to London and you turned into this wonderful countryside that was uh, near your home, now this had actually been part of a, a royal estate. Yes, it was a part of uh, all the land around Chesant, the town that I grew up in was called Chesant. That was all part of the Theobald's estate uh, from the Norman period onwards. And so there was a palace there called Theobald's Palace where Elizabeth I stayed a lot. And then James I, when he came down to become uh, James I, was he James VI of Scotland? And he came down to become the kings of both England and Scotland. On his way to London, he stopped off at this palace and said, oh, I quite like this. So he moved in. He lived there for most of his life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that palace was in ruins. Did the it? others mind? Yeah, the others mind. <laughs> Do you know, I think what happened with Elizabeth I is that she spent so much time in that palace and, uh, you know, bankrupted the guy who owned it because <laughs> a queen requires lots of entertainment. Yes. He ended up giving it to her. <laughs> I'll so, have 500 mince pies, Exactly. Please. And another swan, please. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
So James the first inherited this house, uh, which was uh, you know obviously came with lands, you know park lands where he would hunt uh, forests. And uh, when I grew up, that house was in ruins. They, they built another stately home a bit further west. But just south of our house, actually, on the forest track, there was a, a thing called Temple Bar, which you might have heard of. It was uh, a gateway to the city of London. And I think by the 1800s, there was too much traffic in the city of London. This gateway was too narrow, this big stone and brick, you know. Um, so it was gateway. literally where the horses and carriages would go through? Yes, or and they used to put... Pay a um, toll? Or? Pay a toll. I don't know about pay a toll. They probably closed the gates at night. Uh, they used to put traitors' heads on spikes on top of Temple mm. Bar in, in the old days, you know. Uh, and then in 1888, I think it was, um, they were looking at a way to get rid of this. And the lady of the manor at Theobald's in Chesant said, oh, I'll have it. So she took it apart, it's, I think 400 tonnes of stone, moved it to her estate Theobald's and made it her gateway. And this, uh, this gateway, quite a, a large imposing thing, had alcoves for statues, it had a, a big chamber up top, big gates, and she used to entertain people up there. She was a lady of the manor, but she was quite unusual. She was a, um, a good time girl, I think they call her on her in history <laughs> books, who met the Lord while he pub. was... Well, in a casino in, oh. in central London, and uh, he married her. And so she, uh, she inherited the house, and she was a very um, eccentric person. She brought zebras to the estate to pull her carriage instead of horses. She was that kind of person. She played the banjo, so she used to invite people like Winston Churchill, King Edward VII, to Theobalds to entertain them in the room above Temple Bar, this gate. My day, it was a ruin, just in the forest. You know, uh, it had been abandoned. The the wooden gates had rotted away. Just the stone arch was standing, and me and my friends used to climb up into it to go into this room uh, at the top and look out over the forest. Now it's been brought back to London about ten years ago, ten twenty years ago. They decided to bring it back, so they moved all these stones again, and it's now standing near uh, St Paul's Cathedral somewhere. But when I was growing up, it was just an overgrown ruin in the forest, which was a very romantic sight. Yes, I'm sure. And, yeah. and also, this lady, Valerie Muse, was a former good time girl who married the Lord and inherited the whole estate. Good yeah. for her. And uh, she sounds like she had uh, quite a lot of character and didn't care what others thought. Exactly. So, where you were, you're saying that, I mean, that would have been marvellous to have these uh, old architectural bits here and there in the forest. And uh, you're also on the old Roman road to London. So did this already give you this uh, interest it, in this ancient route? It really did, actually. So our house was built um, on Ermine Street, which was the main Roman road from London in a straight line north to York. And it also was built over a plague pit, apparently, because our district was called Berry Green, and people said, oh, it's because, you know, they, they buried the people there after the, the plague of London in the 1660s. So I would often look out of my bedroom window at night and hope to see a Roman legion passing by. You know, ne never did. But I, it fascinated me, the stories of, you know, uh, the Roman conquest of Britain and then, you know, the, the tribes and then the Normans and everything that followed on. I've often thought about the Romans, you know, going particularly uh, north to the north of England to Hadrian's Wall and how foggy and how cold yes. and wet they must have been. How far away from home. Mm. Yes. There, yeah. there's a, they've, they've found postcards, haven't they, in the, in the ditches along Hadrian's Wall, which have been very well preserved by the, the peat. And they're, they're asking their mums to send them warm socks from Rome because <laughs> it's so cold and rainy and they don't know why they're there. Yes. <laughs> I know it. Well, they just boil the vegetables here, Mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when, when uh, you, you know, um, Boudicca 
came to ransack London uh, to, to try to find the Roman army, but they were out, I think. And, you know, she ransacked London and then went back north. But I think she would have come and gone on Ermine Street with her army. Mm. So oh, I was fascinated by these things that may possibly have happened outside my bedroom window. I remember about her that she was, you know, so this was, how would you describe her? She was the queen of a tribe, wasn't she? Mm. The Iceni tribe of Norfolk. And, and I think um, she was very badly treated by the Romans. Yes. So she rebelled and, and gathered some other tribes from nearby and then went to um, attack London. Yeah. And I think if you are going to scare some Romans, then be naked and cover yourself in blue woad. I That's think. right, yeah. Have long flaming red hair, which the Romans found rather barbarous. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> those ginger Celts, eh? Yes. So that's uh, Ermine Street, which you grew up on, the, the old Roman road to London. Now, when you're looking at these, um, let's uh, look back at Pete James Spurrier, the boy. He's in a library earning some money, yeah. some pocket money. And um, So you're already surrounded by books then, Pete? I was, and it was a Victorian library. And uh, I had a Saturday job there, actually. I, I started off by getting work experience from school. Oh, great, go to Chesham Public Library. Then it became a Saturday job. Uh, but I would also, I would often go up the ladder into the, the attic and find the old books that weren't on the shelves anymore. And there was like old local history books, old atlases, you know, map books, and I would pore over those. And then when I left school, I wanted to save up a bit of money to go travelling with. So they said, oh, you can work here for the summer. So that was even more time to, uh, as well as working, read about the places I might be travelling to in, in Europe and the Middle East and wherever. Now, you'd be doing quite a, a bit of extensive travelling before you ended up in Hong Kong, but um, you actually, within your family, have a connection to China. A little bit. My great-uncle was in North China in the 1930s in the Royal Navy, up at Wei Hai Wei, and then his younger brother was stationed in Hong Kong in the Navy in the 1950s. So then when I came to Hong Kong in the early 90s, he was quite surprised to hear that I'd, I'd washed up here. But he warned me to uh, stay away from those tea dance halls in Wan Chai. You know, mm, those, those how did that go? Notorious places. Well, I, d I didn't want to tell him that I think Wan Chai had changed a bit since his day and uh, <laughs> the Vietnam War might have changed the tenor of the, <laughs> the, the district a little bit. <laughs> but uh, So you've got generations of uh, spurriers that have come to Hong Kong. So in terms of your travels, you, you have this summer in the library. And then where did you head off? Then I had this idea of going to work on the orange harvest in Spain, so I uh, gathered my money together. I think I had £500, which didn't turn out to be enough because when I crossed the channel, all my family and friends took me down to Folkestone, got the ferry across the <laughs> channel, because there was no tunnel then, right? Yes. Uh, watched the, uh, the white cliffs receding into the distance. Then I was hitchhiking across France, down through Spain, I just missed the orange harvest. <laughs> <laughs> At which point it also started to get a bit cold because it was October, November, so I thought I'll just go further south down to Gibraltar. Then I crossed the straits into Morocco where it was uh, warm. I think it's always warm there. It's a, a safe bet. Yeah. But uh, what do you do if you can't earn from oranges? Well, yes. Uh, so then I thought I'll go around the Mediterranean to Italy, which sort of worked out eventually. I had to get through Algeria to go there, but they were having a... Islamic Revolution at the time, uh, which was exciting and unexpected. I crossed from Morocco into Algeria, and at the border, they were um, shaving people's beards off because uh, if you had a beard in Algeria, it marked you out as somebody who was a, a rebel. So they were shaving people, so I had to shave off my travelling beard as well just to get into the country. It's quite odd. How old are you at this point? It's 19. And did it, I yeah. mean, was this the first time that you'd, well, 
when you take that ferry, other than your trip as a as a tot in a pushchair, is this your first time abroad again? No, I'd been on an exchange to France when I was maybe 15. But other than that, yes. Yeah. So there you are, mm. crossing from Morocco into Algeria. And, um, I mean, did it bother you that there might be some political unrest? At that age, no, it just excited me. Yeah. Because uh, it seemed like, oh, real travel, you know, let's see what's going on. And uh, I met some local people and I went to stay with them and they showed me around the country. It was a wonderful experience, actually. Very glad I went. And we went down into the Sahara, which is a wonderful landscape that I'd never thought I would see. I didn't, wasn't really on my, on my plan. I'd made this sort of vague idea to do a semi-circle around Europe and then back again, like a gap year. Or, or it was only supposed to be six months, but suddenly I was in the Sahara. You know, that's how life works, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah, as you say, you often take the opportunity to hitchhike. Now, that's a, perhaps an economic decision as well, but did you find that that way that you were actually much more in touch with the local people? Very much. Uh, I didn't actually think it would work until I tried it. Uh, I was getting um, buses through northern France and I, I, I was carrying a tent as well. I was trying to sort of travel frugally. But um, one day I was standing in the rain, buses weren't coming. I thought, I'll just try this hitchhiking. Stuck my thumb out and a woman in a, you remember those old French cars, the Deux Chevaux, the little yeah, ones TCV, that made up yeah. yeah. uh, She stopped and she was a teacher and, and she drove me halfway to Paris and uh, we chatted in my schoolboy French and it was wonderful. Then. Um, when she turned, I got off and uh, got another one. It seemed to work, and it was uh, it was quite easy. I was quite surprised, and I did that throughout Europe, and it was great because it was like having a, a free tour guide for an hour. <laughs> talking late 1980s or uh, 1991 right so yeah you know while while you're driving they'd say this, this is talk about the local attractions and you know don't go this way go there and uh, have you had lunch or you know often, <laughs> often buy me lunch uh, a couple of times oh you've got anywhere to stay no I'd stay on their sofa so it was a great way to travel uh, taking a few risks obviously but uh, I, I was meeting local people and hearing local you know uh, recommendations so I thought it was really uh, a good way to do it so you're there in the Sahara where did you go from there I then went from Algeria into Tunisia and then a ferry to Italy because I was looking for a place where I could find work and I thought Italy would do it. And I was travelling with, I met a guy on a bicycle, right, uh, a Welsh guy who was cycling to India very slowly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't in any hurry. Uh, just as well, really. Just as well. He was an old hippie, uh, long blonde hair, he had daffodils <laughs> on the back of his back. Oh, yeah. lovely. Yeah. Uh, so um, met him and we went across Sicily together and he would cycle and I would hitchhike and we'd agree to meet up at various towns. And it always worked. It was incredible. We'd always arrive at the same time at different towns. <laughs> so you travel in very slow cars, Pete. It's like us. Well, I, I didn't mind hanging around either mm. and taking detours. And that's, that's what right. travel is all about, isn't it? Going yes. the way you don't expect and, you know, being taken on a loop and finding something new. But we got as far as Palermo, I think. And also we'd met a Japanese girl. She travelled with us as well. And we were camping out in forests and on beaches and even on church roofs, actually. And I'd never met Japanese people before. And she seemed really adventurous. And then we got to Palermo, Palermo, the main city in Sicily, and she said, well, I've got to go now. My two-week holiday's over. And she flew back to Tokyo. We didn't know that she'd just been on a random tour of Sicily, met two guys, went, 
hitchhiking with them. Very <laughs> <laughs> impressed by her. But then we, me and the, the, this guy, we, we were in the city trying to work out where to sleep for the night. And we thought we'll go in the back of the train station, climb into a carriage that's parked there, that'll do. And it's in, we're in the darkness, we're in between carriages and we're climbing up the window into a train and um, someone appears at the end and it was a policeman, shouted something at us. We froze, thinking maybe he hasn't seen us, and he shot over our heads. No! Yes. Uh, so I came out with my hands up, surrendero, whatever that is in Italian. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but my friend came out saying, how dare you shoot at us? What the hell are you doing? Pointing, pointing his finger. And I was saying, no, don't do that. He's going to think you've got a gun. Anyway, we were taken into the police station. It turned out that the day before, a judge had been blown up by the mafia in his motorcade. And so they were very edgy, the police. You know, knocked us about a bit and then let us go. So that was Italy. That was Italy. <laughs> then a few towns, <laughs> a few a few towns away from that. I was then uh, getting the ferry to the mainland of Italy. I was sleeping in the ferry pier uh, on top of my backpack, which was a huge backpack. And I was woken up by my head hitting the floor. Somebody had run away with the backpack. So, You're kidding? With no, you on really, top of it? With me? Well, well, I fell off it and knocked my head on the floor. Because what? I'm a very heavy sleeper. That's the problem. So I had everything stolen. Very lucky because it was quite cold. I was sleeping with my clothes inside my sleeping bag, but literally all I had then was my clothes and my sleeping bag. So, but, but what about your passport cash? I had that in a money belt around right. my, my stomach, luckily, but I'd lost everything else, my camera, my films that hadn't been developed yet, my, my diaries, um, which I'd written people's names and addresses down in that I'd met. It was really, really sad. But in a way, it was very liberating because I found a rope, actually, uh, I, um, and I rolled my sleeping bag up in it and threw it over my shoulder and then it was just me and my clothes and my sleeping bag and I felt very free, you know, uh, free of this burden that I'd been carrying around all the time. So that was your Jack Kerouac moment, was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, very touching. I, I, because I'd lost my diaries and films that I hadn't developed yet and camera films that hadn't developed, I thought there's nothing of value in this backpack. The people who'd stolen it must have just knifed it open then gone through it realised it's rubbish and thrown it away. So I spent a couple of days going around the bins of this city looking for my, my no, diaries. I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And like sifting through trying to find it, you know, because it's no value to anybody else. And um, while I did that, some people came up and gave me money because I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for food. <laughs> it was very charming. It was very nice indeed. Even a guy who was sifting through the bins for food came across and, and tried to give me some food. Because uh, he thought I was doing the same thing, yeah, yeah. But I never found anything, I never found the diaries. So I got on the ferry to Italy, to uh, the mainland, and carried on hitchhiking. I ended up in Greece, where I did find some work. Yeah, so you, do you go from Italy to Greece by ferry, or...? Yes, from the port, I think it's Brindisi. It's, it's not a long ferry ride. And I'd been saving up, actually, I'd had... Um, because my money had run out entirely by this point, which is why I was sleeping in ferry piers and that sort of thing. I'd been going into bakeries in the morning and asking them for yesterday's bread. You know, I learned how to say that in Italian. They'd always say, yeah, I have today's bread. Yesterday's cakes, whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. I, <laughs> if you can't have yesterday's bread, eat <laughs> yes. yesterday's, yesterday's cake. cakes. Yeah, yes, I ate very well. I had, I had a, um, a pack of butter that I used to butter the bread <laughs> every day. <laughs> but I had, uh, I had £25 left, and I knew the ferry from Italy to Greece was £20. So I thought, I've got to keep this £25, because then £5 will help me survive in Greece for, until I find a job or whatever. So I got to the ferry pier. The ferry was, yes, the equivalent £20. And then they said, oh, port tax, it's £5. Oh, no, uh, yeah. so you've got so, nothing again. So I arrived in Greece with literally nothing, yeah. Just my sleeping bag on, on a rope over my shoulder, a bit like Dick Whittington, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but a, a bit more shabby. And the, and the clothes on your back. <laughs> and the clothes on my back, luckily, yes. 
the only uh, set of clothes that I, I owned. Results in you making hair braids for girls on the beach for a whole summer. Yeah. Says Pete's Barrier's crib notes here. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I arrived on Corfu Island and it was the, um, I think it was March, it was before the tourist season started. Uh, so there's nobody there. All the Greeks tend to move off the islands into Athens for the winter. Uh, so I arrived on an island where there was nothing happening, no people. But I knew the tourists would come, so I just had to wait a month or so. So I found food growing wild, like leeks and almonds, and I, I just cooked them for a month, living on the beach, making a fire, surviving on that sort of thing, until the tourists started coming back. And then I started getting work painting the restaurants that were getting ready for the season and that sort of thing, doing odd jobs. And then doing braids, hair braids for girls, which I did for the whole summer. Just put a table on the beach with a little sign saying, hair braids, 300 drachmas. And it was uh, wonderful. So yeah. you're quite dexterous. Um, I must be, mustn't I, because I could do it okay. Somebody taught me how to do it, and I can't remember who, but it was just four strands of different coloured cotton, and you, you put beads in it, make stripes and patterns, and ask the girls what they wanted, you know, and then <laughs> and, yeah, that was quite popular. <laughs> I was the only person doing it on this on this um, beach along the whole coast, I think. So I became quite well known. But, so um, whenever I walked into town in the evening, I'd get free drinks and food everywhere because everyone thought I was a bit, you know, uh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but do you, um, I mean, there's, there's a couple of strands coming out of this conversation. One is you don't seem to hit the seasons right. You miss the orange <laughs> season. Right. You arrive early in Corfu for the tourist season. But the other thing is that you seem to cope remarkably well with no money? Yeah, only through uh, throwing myself into it, really, and not having any other way out. So this is the time before I even um, didn't have an ATM card, you know, so I left home with traveller's checks and some cash, and once that was gone, just had to find some more work. But luckily in Europe it's, it's quite possible to do that. Now in Greece, you end up living in a cave. Yeah, so the tourist season ended in September, whenever that happened, and so I went to the mainland of Greece, the Peloponnese, and did find the orange harvest. I was there at <laughs> so, so Take it all back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that you get information from people who are going the other way. So I found out that there were a few towns on the mainland where, which had orange harvests and they were going to start in December. So I hitchhiked through the Peloponnese, which is a lovely thing to do because it's a wonderful landscape of, you know, cypress trees and mountains and ruins, you know, Olympia and Sparta and all these sort of places. And got to the village that I'd heard one orange harvest would be happening in called Mikinair and I was a few weeks early so I just decided to set up camp in the hills behind the village find a place to stay and while I was sitting on a rock actually one evening having my dinner this guy came past with a bicycle um, and, and I'd startled him by sitting there and he went oh hey and I recognised his accent it was American oh you're American are you what are you doing here I said oh, I'm waiting for the orange harvests to start <laughs> oh me too yeah. where are you staying uh, so he said well, well me and this other guy we found a cave and we're living in that want to come and look so yeah all right well, did they charge you rent no they? no i didn't know it was a very large cave um so i went to look and they said yeah move in if you like uh, you know, so it was a, a short tunnel had they in. taken all the best bits already <laughs> the best bit. there weren't any best bits <laughs> <laughs> Publisher Pete Spurrier there. 
Next week, Pete continues on his journey, spending three winter months living in a Greek cave and showing how you can go through life without needing very much at all. But things get tougher when he decides to head through the newly formed states of the former Soviet Union, where water and food are scarce for this traveller. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Thank you.